Listen up. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Listen Up, the Louisville Urban League's radio show and podcast. My name is Lyndon Pryor, and interim president and CEO of the Louisville Urban League. Thank you for joining us again this week. I hope that you have had a safe, healthy, and whole week since last time we met. Remember, you can catch us every week um, live on the radio on WLLV 101.9 FM or 1240 AM on Thursdays from 12 to 1230, or you can find us anytime um, wherever you get your favorite podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, review us, let us know what you think of the show. I am excited this week because we have a very special guest in-house joining us on the pod. Um, UofL's own Dr. Ricky Jones is here. Welcome, sir. Uh, thank you, brother. Always good to hang out with you, man. Absolutely. Brother President, <laughs> brother CEO, you know, I, I, brother I, top I, dog. I, yes, I, I appreciate that. I don't, still adjusting to these, to these titles. Um, I see your neck and getting you, bigger. <laughs> Heavy well, as the it, head, right? Hey, man, that's, yeah, that's also summer eats, man. We <laughs> so um, it is. It is just it's a joy to have you on the show again. Another um, major voice in this city, but also somebody who who cares about the league, who cares about the movement, who cares about black people. Um, and somebody who is always willing to to spit wisdom and knowledge, not just for me, but for lots of brothers and sisters around this community. And so I'm excited to have you on. We were talking before we got started. I don't know um, what direction this is going to go in. And so it's going to be interesting to see um, kind of where we meander because your your interest and perspectives are all over the place. But we're going to start where I start with everybody, um, because I'm not going to assume that everybody knows you um, fully, even though I, I expect that most people listening to this. They probably well. do not. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, you're right, because they probably don't know really who you are. They right. know who others say you are. Right, right, um, right. And so I always ask people to give us the quick and dirty on who is Dr. Ricky Jones. Hey, man, I'm just a poor kid from the um, housing projects of Atlanta, Georgia, you know, raised by his grandmother, uh, went to Atlanta public schools, proud graduate of Morehouse College, came to the state of Kentucky because I got a very good financial package to go to graduate school at the University of Kentucky, left there and uh, took a position at the University of Louisville, been there ever since professionally, proud father of Jordan Jones. 15-year-old, beautiful young lady who's a, a rising sophomore in high school now and uh, try to be a good friend, brother and love of the people. That's, that's me. Everything that I do is, uh, you know, in one way or another, affiliated, you know, with and influenced by those things. That's amazing. So let's start there with, with U of L. Um, you know, you have been chair of the Pan-African Studies Department. And what has that experience been like for you? Because I know, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, that's that phase of your career sunsetting. Um, but what has that experience been like, um, leading that department, leading that work, um, both from the perspective of at Louisville and what that's meant, uh, but also just kind of globally and what uh, Pan-African studies and black studies means in kind of a, a more global context in terms of education in, in this nation. Yeah. Um, for me, it's been exhilarating 
and taxing, mm. you know, simultaneously. It's, I've been honored to, to been the longest serving chair of the Pan-African Studies Department at the University of Louisville. Um, very grateful and thankful to my colleagues, not to the university, let me be very, very clear. Mm. I've been grateful and thankful to my colleagues in Pan-African Studies who have entrusted me with that. You know, not only have I been the longest serving chair, I was the youngest chair. Mm. When they brought me in, youngest chair in the history of that department, and was the youngest chair in the College of Arts and Sciences when I, when I took over at um, like 35. And that work is so incredibly important because what black studies is, wherever you find it, you know, at these predominantly white schools, it's kind of an, an intellectual oasis, it's a sanctuary. Kind of many HBCUs, really, as we try to build them, sitting in these white schools where mm -hmm. black people are completely disempowered, um, black children are continuously miseducated, mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're trying to offer a corrective to that because black studies is the most radical insurgency in American higher education. I think it's even more important now as you see these blatant attacks on uh, education about black people mm -hmm. and the education of black people. And so, you know, it's time for me to step away from it um, just because, as I said, it's, it's taxing. So it, it wears on you and you don't, you don't have the energy and the fight to engage in that daily mm -hmm. because every step we take, you know, take forward, you, you have other forces at the university that are going to push back. And the University of Louisville is not unique in that. Mm -hmm. um, you see that a lot of PWIs, but you're probably not going to find very many black folk who are going to say that um, because the culture of fear runs so incredibly deep and uh, some of the individual selfishness runs deep. So, mm -hmm. you know, for me, a, a, a lot of black folk have been so missocialized at this point in history that they're very worried about individual positions. Mm -hmm. I have always been worried about collective black power, mm -hmm. and I still am. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's what black studies pushes us to do. So that's what that experience has been like for me. So real quick on that, because it, it just dawned on me that when we say Pan-African studies or Africana studies or black studies. And they're all the that, same thing. Right, and, that, and, I, and I wonder if people really understand what that is, right? Like what, because, there are misnomers for people who are certainly outside of the realm of higher education, but even inside of higher education, there are people who just simply misunderstand, like, what are y'all doing over there? What are you talking about? What is this department about? It's about black people. <laughs> when I put it very simply, it's about black people. It's, it's the meaningful engagement of black people historically, contemporarily, and examining the futures that we have. Mm. And folks say, well, isn't that racist? You know, just, just because it's, you calling it black studies, look, that's the beauty and the insidiousness of white supremacy and mm -hmm. whiteness is that it's ever present, but it's invisible. Mm -hmm. You don't have to tag the, the name white in front of anything in a white supremacist country. Right. You go over to the history department, you know it's white history, it's understood. Mm -hmm. You go over to the political science department, you know it's white political paradigms. You go over to the psychology department, you know it's white psychological models. Mm -hmm. And you know that most of these things are going to be taught by an almost exclusively white faculty, mm -hmm. right? So they're having their own particular perspective. So when you talk about black studies, it's the one place 
that our children and others who are interested in the truth about black contributions to this country and this world, where you can find that truth and you can, you know, launch that counter narrative to many of the lies that have been told. And, you know, the efforts to push those lies are being ramped up. It's right. not just in Florida. I mean, it's, 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 it's mm -hmm. all over the country. And so what, what Pan-African Studies is that name, that department, which is one of the older black, black studies departments in the country. We're coming up on our 50th anniversary mm -hmm. next school year. Pan means all, all African, the study of African-descended people throughout the diaspora. Mm -hmm. Africana studies means the same thing. Mm -hmm. Black studies, you know, the names are interchangeable, so don't get caught up on that. Different mm -hmm. departments have different names. But it's really a place that we can, without shame, without hesitation, without apology, study black people. It's the vehicle through which we serve the people. Mm. So in thinking about, um, you know, you said something there in terms of um, the paradigms in which so many other disciplines and, and uh, subjects are taught. You and I have had other conversations about kind of this rise of anti-intellectualism that that we've seen. And I don't know if it's really a rise. Maybe we're just paying attention to it more. Maybe it's always existed. I'm not sure. Um, but the value, as I see it, of um, Pan-African studies and in similar types of things is really it helps to expand thought, right? Like in how we see the world, how young people come um, to understand the world around them. Um, and truly, you know, as you just said, you know, find truth um, and alternatives to whatever it is that the world may have taught them. Do you see in your students um, kind of that awakening that occurs when they, when they go through this, through, the, through your courses and through um, this degree program? All the time. All the time. I mean, I, I've been at the University of Louisville for 27 years. I cannot tell you how many students will say, why have I never been taught this before? Why didn't I know this? There's an anger with some of them because they feel that they've been lied to, and they mm -hmm. have either lies of commission or omission mm -hmm. in their intellectual development. And it's not just with the black kids. It's with the white kids, too. Because what American education does as a socializing tool the way it's set up, the way the curricula are designed across the country, black kids leave these situations quite often with inferiority complexes, mm -hmm. which are wrong, incredibly damaging. But our white children leave with these false superiority complexes. Mm -hmm. Both are off. Mm -hmm. And so with the corrective that they can get in black studies, like, nah, you know, black people have played a meaningful role in not just the development of, of America, but of the world. Mm -hmm. And anthropologically, black people were here first. Right. You know? And so, in a sense, we're all African. Mm -hmm. And when you really start to frame it like that, um, it's, it's, it's very different. But, but now, what I am seeing as you talk about anti-intellectualism, you're right. There's always been a strain of anti-intellectualism in America. But I do believe that it's ramping up. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing it more and more at the college level. Smaller classes that are not just due to COVID, mm -hmm. a disinterest in blackness, mm. even among black students. And I find that incredibly, incredibly troubling. Mm. Um, and so I don't know where that's going. When you talk about what's happening at the K through 12 level with the hostility 
towards black people mm. and academic intellectual engagement, historical engagement about black people, there's no way you can create that type of cauldron and it not have an effect on the kids who are coming out of that system. So they're, mm -hmm. the ones that are getting to college, they've been tainted at yeah. this point about black people. And I shudder to think what's going on with the ones who aren't even attending college. As people mm -hmm. are said to being told, you know, you don't really need to go to college. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of black kids are being told, well, if you want to go to, just go to trade school or right. something. You know, people are telling them to go to trade school while they're sending their kids to Ivy's. It's, yeah. it's very interesting. Which is an age, old, I did not think we were going here, but which is kind of an age old um, conversation, even within black people, uh, our community, it goes back to, you know, Du Bois and Washington and those sorts of things around what's the best path for, for black people. And so I, I wonder for you, and I know somebody who values and understands the, the benefit of higher education, why is college still the way for folks to go? First of all, what people don't want to talk about in a capitalist society, and I'm not a capitalist, but mm. if you're just looking at it financially, studies have shown forever the more education you have, the more money you earn mm -hmm. over a lifetime. You know, if you don't have a high school diploma, the people with a high school diploma are going to get more. Folks with associate's degrees are going to get more than the high school diploma holders. Folks with bachelor's degrees are going to get more than the associates, masters more than, than the bachelor's. Mm -hmm doctorates more than, than, than the masters. So there's an economic benefit to it for people who are just off into that. Right. But also what education is supposed to do, if you're in, in different places are gonna do it in different ways. It creates more critically, citizens who are more involved in critical thinking, mm -hmm. you know, greater intellectual engagement. And if you have greater intellectual engagement, that's going to impact everything. Right. It's going to impact where you live, mm -hmm. the people that you hang out with, mm -hmm. who you vote for, who you have children with, right. how you raise those children, mm -hmm. how you engage in, in community construction, yep. what is your concern about particular issues, yep. and where you, you stand for. on those issues. All of those things, you know, all of those things. Um, so education in that sense is critical now different places do it differently. Right. A black kid ain't going to get the same education at the University of Louisville that he or she is going to get at Spelman or Morehouse mm -hmm. or FAM or Howard. Mm -hmm. You know, so for me, as white supremacy ramps up and becomes much more bold, um, a key question, we could do a whole show on this, is <clears throat> how should we re-engage the integration versus voluntary separation yeah. debate. You know, because I my ideas have changed on that over the years. Ah, man, that is a, I don't even know <laughs> if I won't go down that rabbit hole because I have a whole, I have a whole thesis around what, yeah, integration, I mean, I, what integration did to us because it was not, you know. Well, and even now, like this sister, this sister was saying um, a, a, a couple weeks ago, man, she, and she's in higher ed. And she was like, can we in good conscience, as we talk about this dearth of black professors at, at white schools, and there's a dearth, right? okay? Like at the University of Louisville, the end of last year, there were 18 black professors at the College of Arts and Sciences, which is the largest college at the university. 18. Wow. 10 were in the Department of Pan-African Studies. Jeez. All right? So literally, 
over half of the black professors in the College of Arts and Sciences in one department, and the university ain't even addressing the issue. Right. But it's just a, how, can we, in good conscience, continue to recruit black people into these toxic environments mm-hmm. that are hostile to them and end up professionally and psychologically breaking many of them? Mm. That's a serious conversation to have. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, and we'll just say it for another day. But yeah, it's a absolutely. I mean, because I think it is, and I just have to, you know, because folks will hear parts of this and not want to take it in full context. It's not about whether or not it was a good. I don't or give bad a thing. damn if they don't take it in full context. <laughs> first of all, I know you, you know. Don't. I mean, seriously, if they if they're not if if they're not interested enough to follow up, right, or listen to the full podcast outside of the one that's broadcast then I ain't worried about them. Mm-hmm. If they're coming into the conversation where they're just looking for, for snippets, like they, the preacher say, if they want to proof text something and lift something up mm-hmm. out of this conversation to use for their own white supremacist benefit, then to hell with them. I'm not concerned about them. I understand. You know, that, I, I mean, I just want to be clear on that. Oh, I know. I know. I know. It, it wasn't about for you. Yeah, okay, for them. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's for them. <laughs> but it is to say that, you know, it, it is how these things get done, because I think about, you know, and I know you said this and other folks have talked about this when we talk about just at the K through 12 level and just the absence of black teachers, faculty and like that wasn't always the case in this country. Right. Like education was something that black people at one point in this country were very represented in. Um, And then integration happens in the way in which that happened. You had so many people in lots of places, and I'm from Texas originally, and I can tell you about various towns and places in which principals were told, you can't even come over here and be a janitor. We're going to shut your school down, and you are not allowed in this profession anymore. And so what that has done over time and the impact that that has had in so many different places, like, it's something that I don't think, you're right, we've never fully examined or pulled apart around like the lasting impacts of the way in which this thing was done um, and the harm in which it caused, whether that be intentional or not. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just something that we've, we've never really looked at or really turned back the clock to say like, all right, now how do we actually address that? Well, and we're not, we're not, we haven't been serious about it. And people, mm-hmm. and, we, and you're right, we haven't looked at it because we didn't have the longitudinal data to mm-hmm. look at. And not the hard data on what are the numbers of black kids going to predominantly white schools, what are the number of white kids going to predominantly mm-hmm. black kids going to predominantly white, white kids going to predominantly black. We, I'm not just talking about those numbers. I'm talking about getting into some Kenneth Clark type examination generationally mm-hmm. to look at the psychological impact on black people, right. black children who have now are now black adults who've been shot through that system yeah. and the ones who are coming through now. Mm-hmm. You know, how much, it ain't DEI, yeah. right? I mean, because it's, it's like that con game mm-hmm. is, is showing itself to be what it is, you mm-hmm. know, where, where these institutions, corporations have gotten some of the most milquetoast black people they could find mm-hmm. to put into those positions quite often who ain't going to do a doggone thing. You know, they're agreeing with the status quo because they're just trying to keep a job. Mm-hmm. And then in other situations where they have a good DEI officer, 
they under-resource them. They turn them into gangs of one right. and basically drive them crazy, you know, have them running in circles, chasing their own tails because mm -hmm. these people really don't want to change. And so that's why you see this incredible turnover in, in, in those positions. And they've ramped up the attacks even on that yep. where people like, you know, and, and ain't just Ron DeSantis. It's happening across the country. It's happening here Everywhere. in Kentucky, too, where folks are like, no, we're going to disallow. We're going to make any positions that have the title diversity in it illegal. Right. Instead of the organizations, institutions standing up and saying, nah, nah, we're going to fight for this. They're on the run. You know, they're proactively changing the names of positions, changing the names of offices. Like the University of Louisville's top diversity officer is no longer called the diversity officer. Mm -hmm. It's called the chief equity officer now. Right. You know, so that, this is cowardice. Yeah. They're, they're running. Right. And so the question is, what do what can we do that's serious to really, really interrogate what's happening to black people without that conversation being polluted and shot through, you know, these prisms where it's 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 not really looked at at all. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to do with my next move. I mean, this is a detour, but it's something you said just it it's a continual theme that I, I bring up when I'm talking to folks here. And so I'm going to ask you this question. Where in life have you found your courage? He said, I'm, I'm a project kid. I, I kind of knew growing up that, that bullies don't leave you alone because you run. Mm -hmm. they, they, they keep coming at you, you know, and you got to fight back. Mm -hmm. Even if you lose, if you fight, then... You know, there's gonna be a different, different dynamic, and so you know, I grew up fighting, yeah. <laughs> right, and was exposed to some brave people in my life. I think the first thing, and I can't tell you exactly where this. I grew up in a black world, mm -hmm. right? I, I mean, I grew up in a black world, so a lot of people, are like, oh, you're a racist because you love black people. How are you gonna say that? Yeah. I'm like the white people say about black people. When I, I have white friends. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do. But I don't I don't have a white type of white friends who are Trumpers. Yeah. You know, I don't I'm not gonna contort myself to be liked by some white person, you know, mm -hmm. so I I become a, a, a freaking raceless ghoul. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not gonna do that. But I have a deep and abiding love for black people. That's always been there. It intensified once I had a child. Mm-hmm. Because I understand what anti-black racism is doing to black people. It's literally killing us. Mm -hmm. Literally. I mean, you're seeing studies coming from the AP. You're seeing studies coming, you know, from schools of medicine now that have just dropped in the last few weeks, talking about from the cradle to the grave, black women disproportionately dying in childbirth at higher rates than white women. Right. Black infant mortality is higher. Mm -hmm. Higher rates of disease, shorter lifespans higher rates of mental health problems that, that black folk are going on, right. uh, uh, dealing with. All that is really being traced to institutional racism. Right. Now, if, if, you got a, if you're a black father, you're a black mother, you know that that's what's going on in this world, then it is absolutely insane for us not to have the courage to fight to make this a better world for our children. Mm. That's really, really important to me. If you're mm. such a coward, that you won't, fight, you won't fight for your child mm -hmm. and you won't fight for children who look like your child, I don't know what to say about you. You know, mm -hmm. so I don't think that, I don't think that I'm um, um, oddly courageous. Mm -hmm. 
I think that we have too many of our people these days, Linda, who are oddly cowardly. Mm. Mm. That's something. And I, I mean, because I asked that question, because I think I, I hold the opinion and I think about this space, Louisville in particular. And one of the things I say is that courage is the thing that is holding us back. Oh, right. Yeah. Like I think beyond anything else, that it is not our problems are not ones of economics. It's not really ones of politics. It is we don't have enough courageous leaders um, around the city. And so I, I wonder, I've started to just question, how is it that folks come by courage? And I and so I appreciate your answer because I, I definitely understand that. Right. Like running from bullies never helps. No, it never solves a problem. They're gonna um, keep taking your lunch money and, and just, white supremacists are bullies. Yeah, and they and they are everywhere, um, and I, I mean I think and we can acknowledge and I think you kind of already acknowledged that fighting every day is also exhausting, right? It can drive you crazy, and yeah. I and I'm and I'm not being hyperbolic. Mm. I mean it can it can drive you crazy. The the mental health of many black people who because the nail that stands up always gets hammered, mm. and the mental health of black people who do that has always been impacted. There is a cost to it. And, and let me be clear, because I didn't define this on what, so what white supremacy is, mm-hmm. but for, for me. I'm not talking about the Ku Klux Klan. I'm not yeah. talking about the Proud Boys. I'm not, I'm not talking about all that. White supremacy is the belief among a good percentage of white people that believe because of the color of their skin, whether they're aware of it or not, or not, that they and only they ultimately are the groups that get to think, know, and decide mm-hmm. on all matters of consequence. They get to think about all the options, you know, consider them. They get to know what is best, and then they get to decide what actually happens. Mm-hmm. That's white supremacy. You get outside of the Urban League, <clears throat> NAACP, blacks, places like that. Right. Most of the corporations, most of the organizations, most of the educational structures in this town, in most places in this country, think about who the terminal decision makers are. Mm-hmm. They're almost exclusively white. Mm-hmm. That's white supremacy. I mean, that's what it is, where black people, by and large, do not get to make decisions that are going to impact their fate. They're not the terminal decision makers or the fate of their children. Mm-hmm. You know, that's scary. Now, leadership. You're right. Leadership matters. I also think that you're right. Here's what I, I think that. The consequences of white supremacy can be seen in different manifestations all over the country, from Louisville to Oklahoma City to Seattle to Portland, you know, to to D.C. to Chicago. Mm. Kentucky seems to be a little bit strange to me, though, in that (laughs) there, there, there seems to be these tireless efforts to preserve this very strange racial peace. Mm hmm. It's like there's been a deal made between whites and blacks here. And I've had some stronger Louisvillians tell me, you know, my brother Bob Douglas told me that. He was like, this is something that came up from slavery, mm-hmm. where the form of slavery in Kentucky, where black slaves were told, look, you think you got it bad, but it ain't as bad as down in Georgia right. or Mississippi, you know, or Florida or the Carolinas. And if you misbehave, we'll sell you down the river. We'll right. just get rid of you. So the black people were like, yes, a boss. It could be so much worse. Hmm. And so they, they cowed. And then they taught their children that. And they taught their children that. And they taught their children that. Hmm. And so, so now 
<laughs> it is a longer conversation. It is. But I've told some black people here, I'm like, you know, aren't, aren't white people doing enough to you? Why you got to help them? And, and, and you know, some, some white folk get real uncomfortable. I'm like, come on, man. You got all of this power. You know, you got all of this influence. You're making these decisions that are destructive to people. And if we talk about institutional racism, you're going to say that I'm a racist because I call you out on that? Right. That, that's very odd to me. But, but what is odder is the, the black acquiescence yeah. in it. Mm. Yeah. No, that is very much a long conversation. It is when I, you know, have at times wondered about the impact of our proximity to the Ohio River and yeah. what that means and what that must have done to um, just the scores of black people who live here, to know that freedom was across the water and, yeah. and how but, that impacts people. But the future of Louisville, I think, is bad unless something is corrected in that. As I tell folk at the University of Louisville, and, and you know, universities are just kind of a, a microcosm of the cities in which they sit, like, if you look at these terrible numbers that you have with black faculty here, you're going to reach a tipping point where you're not going to be able to recruit black faculty mm -hmm. because they're going to look at your school and say, it's the 21st century. If your numbers are that low, that's telling me that there is either a lack of concern with this disparity or this is very intentional. This is what you want to look like. Mm -hmm. And so black people are going to choose not to come. What else is going to happen, because this is what's happening with, with me, with my child, I don't want her here once she gets out of high school. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about here as Louisville. I'm saying here as in this state. Mm -hmm. Like, you got to go. You got to go to school somewhere else. Now, if you make the decision to return, that's on you. I can't stop that. But I don't think she will. Mm -hmm. And once she's out, so am I. If you work as hard as the state of Kentucky is working to be this racially insensitive white ethno state, eventually people who are not white will cease to come. And then what is your state going to be? You're getting what you want. Right. But what is that going to mean? It's going to be on a whole lot of people's DMV list, man. Yeah. Do, not visit, do not visit. And certainly do not move there. Mm -hmm. And that's the future of this state unless something shifts. Because right now, this is a space that is hostile to black people. It's hostile to other people, too. But we're talking about black people right now. Absolutely. So back on track slightly. So you were stepping down as chair of Pan-African Studies. Mm -hmm. And I want to at least take a minute to talk about who the successor is. That is, is that known yet? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so. Dr. Uh, you know, he's he's a great brother, man. And it's always these guys that have three names. Mm -hmm. You know, Michael Eric Dyson, you know. <laughs> <laughs> William Edward Burkhardt, he got four. You know? yeah. But brother, uh, Brandon McCormick, Michael mm -hmm. Brandon McCormick. Mm -hmm. I'm so incredibly proud of him, excited about him. Um, he's, he's, um, he, was one of the, he was in the first group of students that I taught mm -hmm. when I came to the University of Louisville, taught him. Pledged him, joined my fraternity, um, you know, worked with him to, to get him into Vanderbilt University where he went and got his PhD and then rehired him, mm. you know, brought him back. Didn't rehire him, but brought him back, hired him as a professor. Mm -hmm. And so he got tenured a few years ago. Brilliant, brilliant brother. Loves the people, 
you know, got got good courage, mm -hmm. and um, and he wasn't somebody that I chose. You know, folks should know that the faculty did. I very intentionally stayed out of that process, mm -hmm. and um, you know, so he he's getting ready to take the reins, man, and I'm I'm excited for him. I don't know how excited he is right now, <laughs> but you know what, Linda, he he he. He didn't seek it. He doesn't. He didn't want to be chair, right? right? Which means I think he's going to be a good one, right? Because people who aggressively seek power very rarely handle it well, right? So, so shout out to Brandon McCormick, who who is the next chair of Pan African Studies. Awesome, awesome. And he's currently leading the Ann Brayton Institute, yeah, um, and doing that work. And so, um, yes, Dr. McCormick is is awesome, and, and excited to see him. Um, take the reins and so you then will be transitioning to a new space and so let's talk about what that's going to be because this is exciting yeah starting this summer i'll become a, the baldwin king scholar in residence at the christina lee brown Envirome institute mm. which is an independent research institute but affiliated with the university of louisville and of course baldwin king james baldwin uh, one of my favorite writers and martin luther king jr my morehouse brother mm -hmm. and so with the Baldwin King Project, and it's a whole lot of stuff in that, and, and I'll be releasing more information about it. It's a project that is totally dedicated to exploring the black human experience. Mm. Um, and so I'm very excited about that. It'll relieve me of a bit of the bureaucracy, kind of a one-man gang, look for partners already, had some partnerships with, shout out to Sister Joy McAtee, mm -hmm. who's over in the, in the mayor's office. She's, you know, my first partner. Mm. in this, you know, making financial contributions and, and delivering ideas. And so I'm really excited about this work. So be on the lookout for, for the Baldwin King Project. Absolutely. And so James Baldwin and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, it, for most folks who know, um, obviously two incredible, brilliant, um, courageous individuals, um, but also different um, yeah. in some ways. Why, how did the name come about? Why these two men um, for you? I think because of what you just said, you know, ultimately I'm a writer mm -hmm. with, with all I do, but ultimately I'm a writer. And in being a writer, the, the, the two writers that have influenced me most have been Du Bois and Baldwin. Mm. But, and I thought about my grandmother a little bit in this, you know, and Bob Douglas always said, and every good teacher is a little bit of preacher. Uh -huh. And every good preacher, there's a little bit of teacher. People miss, at core, Baldwin was really this preacher who ran away from preaching. Absolutely. And you see that in his writing. And so the spiritual overtones in Baldwin's writing, I think, are so incredibly emotional. And there's that courage. I don't know of anybody more incisive than Baldwin, mm -hmm. that quick wit, mm -hmm. you know, the bravery, this black gay man in America who did not run from that, yeah. you know? He, he, he's just in your face with it. And then of course there's King, mm. you know, this, this titanic figure who's so important to my life. I attended Martin Luther King, I was born in the same city as King in mm -hmm. Atlanta. I attended Martin Luther King Junior Middle School. And then I end up at Morehouse College, mm. you know, where King was, you know, in class of, of, uh, of, of, of 48, 47. So I'm sure at some point, I probably, because Morehouse never got new desk, I'm sure I probably sat in a, in a desk that King sat in <laughs> at, at some point. So the combination of those, you know, mm -hmm. that name, scholar in residence, um, to, to put that there. And it's important to me that one, I carry it as the inaugural uh, Baldwin King Fellow, 
Baldwin King scholar in residence, but then leave that for another worthy scholar who comes in after I'm gone. That's mm. my legacy for me. Mm. And and for you, for this work is centered exclusively on black people and the black experience, right? Yeah. It's 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 this again, man, this ain't DEI. Mm. You know, this is just about black people because my belief is that there is no group in the United States of America that has suffered more simply because of how we look than black people. Mm -hmm. And we're still suffering. Right. I mean, the assaults on black people are killing us spiritually, killing us psychologically, killing us intellectually, killing us emotionally, and killing us physically. Mm -hmm. Literally, in all of those areas, I think it is worth intellectual and scholarly engagement to figure out how those murders are being carried out mm. and what we can do to turn them around. Mm. You know, and I strongly believe in every group having its own organic intellectuals. So I don't want my work diluted and being concerned about all of these other struggles, not disavowing them, right. not diminishing them, mm -hmm. right? But we need other people solely dedicated to those things if they choose to be. But black suffering runs so deep that I believe that it is my charge from God, for my grandmother, for my daughter, mm -hmm. for me to spend whatever time that I have and whatever energy I have dedicated to trying to alleviate that suffering, to understand it and alleviate it, especially when you have these attacks mm. on education about black people. So, so that's what, what my thing is about it. So everybody know what I'm about when I walk in the room. Right. So how does that look? I mean, and maybe you haven't, you know, I know it's going to be new and you, you're still conceptualizing that, but in thinking about that, right, like what is, and maybe this is the bigger question is, what is the role of the scholar in the movement, right, for black liberation and black, and black freedom? To educate, man. Mm. To educate and make people think, mm. you know, and to help people understand, to place things in the context for those who have the appetite for it, mm -hmm. you know. So you, when, when you get an anti-affirmative action push now that is before the Supreme Court, right, and the guy who is pushing this anti-affirmative action movement at Harvard, and Chapel Hill, mm. okay? His whole case is saying that affirmative action violates the 14th Amendment mm -hmm. and the Civil Rights Act of 64. That's, That's his whole argument. Because this man is a bigot. Right. He's saying it violates the 14th Amendment and anybody who knows their history, the scholar's role is to teach. Look, the 14th Amendment is one of the three Reconstruction Amendments. Right. This is the amendment to the United States Constitution that gave black people citizenship. Mm -hmm. And in that citizenship, gave, the, gave them due process under the law. So now this guy's making the argument that affirmative action violates non-black people's right to due process under the law. It's insanity, right? This guy is coming, doing something that is anti-black, trying to use the Civil Rights Act of 64, which is pro-black, he's trying to use it in an anti-black way. Mm -hmm. The scholar's role is to teach people that when somebody from the right, 
whether it be Daniel Cameron or, or anybody else who stands up and they poach the words of my dear Morehouse brother, Martin Luther King Jr., say, you know, I want people to be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. No, put it in context. Right. Right? And so the black scholar then who understands those things is trying to, t- we're trying to teach as many people as we can to sit in that audience and hear that or watch that television and hear that or look at that social media and hear that and say, this man's lying. Mm-hmm. He's deceiving you because I understand my history. Yes, I am woke. I am awake. Mm-hmm. And so for with Baldwin King, my first thing is to get away from bureaucracy, bureaucracy so I can write. Mm-hmm. You know, I got three books sitting in my head that I haven't been able to do because I'm going to chairs meetings mm-hmm. and dealing with budgets and dealing with all these distractions. So I'm going to write. Two, I'm reaching out to my network of black scholars in this country. You know, another big project is ACC Africana mm-hmm. to combine black studies and people who study black people and concerned about the black experience at the University of Louisville, Miami, Syracuse, Virginia, Duke, Chapel Hill, Georgia Tech you know, in all of these schools, Clemson, mm-hmm. and bringing us together, bringing this community of scholars together, right here in Louisville, Kentucky, right. to have symposia, have public lectures and conversations about these assaults on black people, for anybody who has the appetite to come mm-hmm. in here, to get a speaker series together, where these black authors, you know, where Deidre Cooper Owens out of the University of Nebraska who's talking about epigenetics, do we genetically pass on trauma mm-hmm. from racism? I want to have that sister sitting here rapping about that, or a sister who just did a piece on James Baldwin and, and Martin Luther King Jr. for the LA Times, Harmony mm-hmm. Holiday. Bring her in for an open lecture where we can continue the conversations that Baldwin and King were pushing from jump. That's the role of the black scholar overall, and certainly the role of the Baldwin King Project, you know, in particular, mm-hmm. to push this intellectual educational project for people who are interested. Now the question is, how many black people are even interested in that? I don't know what the appetite is for Mm -hmm. it here, but we're gonna find out. So that begs the question then though, but how do we, how do we birth an appetite, right? And this may be a question or, you know, you have to think in terms of parents or mentors, aunties, uncles, godparents, how do we birth that? Because I think you're right. I think as as kids get um, kind of propelled through this system that is very much um, structured in in through this this white supremacist paradigm, it is hard for kids to to see and want to latch on to um, those things that that look like and feel like them, um, or at least the them. That, that they see every morning. And so how do you begin to birth that appetite in people at young ages, but even, I mean, we can't pass up on adults. How do you begin to do that? In a word, education. Mm. Well, in two words, education and socialization. But we're not gonna be able to cre- create this communal appetite artificially. Mm. Two things here, both are disturbing, okay? Both are disturbing. Haynes Walton Jr great political scientist, also a Morehouse man who Mm. who died some years ago, came up with what he called a situational thesis. And he said, it doesn't matter how good leadership is. It doesn't matter how good the ideas are. If a community is not ready to move, nothing will happen. Mm. You know, if the people ain't ready, nothing will happen. You know, you look at Montgomery, 
Um, Vernon Johns was the pastor at Martin Luther King Jr.'s church before King. Mm-hmm. And Vernon Johns was hardcore, but the people weren't ready. Right. Then McTeel got killed. Everything shifted. People like to say in Louisville, Breonna Taylor got killed. Everything shifted. I'm not sure if everything has shifted here. We shall see. Right. But until the people are ready, nothing ain't going to happen. It's going to be a situation. Mm. Here's the second thing that's even more disturbing. On the path we're on right now, you got to understand that for, and it's not all white people, because there's certainly some great white allies. I mean, one of my greatest heroes, John Brown, was white. Mm. <laughs> you know, man who said, I got a system to destroy. You're talking about slavery. Right. Mm-hmm. Got a system to destroy. I have no time to, to waste. William Lloyd Garrison, white. You know, there have been some great white fighters, and there still are some great white fighters mm. in this city. And Brayton. Was, was hardcore. Right. I mean, I remember the woman told me once, I was like, you know, I hope I ain't going too hard on these people. She was like, no, Ricky, you're not going hard enough. And she's just <laughs> going in on me. You know, it's a white woman. It's like, I'm like, damn, man. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> but for the, a good percentage of white people, they have always seen black people in this country from the time we were brought here to serve two roles, to serve and entertain. Mm. That's been it, to serve and entertain. We've fallen into this, this trap where we not just tolerate, we have celebrated for too long mediocre people, mm. athletes, and entertainers. Mm-hmm. I'm talking in the black community. This is, this is what we do. Oh, mediocre people, athletes, and entertainers. At the expense of the of educated, of intellectual development, of political acumen. Mm-hmm. Unless we can find a way out of that, we're going to continue on a tack where a certain percentage of black people, they're going to do well. Mm-hmm. Always have, right? A certain percentage is going to do well, and that's going to quickly flatten out, though. Right. Where you're going to have the masses who are going to struggle Mm. in absolutely heinous, hellish ways. Um, how do we turn that around in, immediately? Look, man, this might be as good as it gets for black folk. And we have to deal with that, that possibility. This might be as good as it gets. Because even politically, right now, we don't have as much attention being paid to our people anymore. No. Even though we're the Democrats' most loyal constituency, there's much more attention being paid now to our Hispanic brothers and sisters because their numbers have surpassed ours. Mm-hmm. So black people need to be real honest about the situation that we're in. I don't want to continue to go long. <laughs> no. But that's, no. that's real. No, that is. It's, it's absolutely real. I think I have, you know, I am more hopeful, I think, that, that we can stem the tide and begin to turn things around. But I think that we do have to confront the absolute possibility of the reality that things can get worse. And I think I've said this probably the last two, three, maybe four election cycles where I was just like, I think black people in particular have to recognize that things can get worse, yeah. right? Like as bad as things are or may seem for people that they can get worse. And I don't, I don't know that we always in mass understand that or recognize that, you know, our current reality is actually still not as bad as it absolutely could be. 
um, yeah. if we are not paying attention. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying I'm. I'm not saying I have no hope. Oh yeah. But I'm being realistic. Mm. You know, I'm dealing with the reality of what the possibilities are. Mm. You know that, and I think it's important to do that because you you can't just stick your head in the sand and say, you know. God like Matt Bevan, who came down here, I got a solution. Just pray about it. Right. And, and, and go form prayer teams and walk up and down the, the doggone block. Mm-hmm. If Look, man, if prayer was all we needed, black would people would rule the world. For real. Okay? We the most praying folk you ever seen. <laughs> we believe in God. We going into church. We going to sing. We going to do it all. Mm-hmm. So if that's all it took, we'd be, we'd be straight. <laughs> we'd and, be. All right? and, and I'm a church dude. I no. go to church. <laughs> and I feel good when I go. But you, okay, you go in there and sit still and pray and don't do nothing. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> since we turned to the to politics, you are a political scientist right. um, by by trade. Um, and in this, I saw that our, our, our great philosopher, Dr. Cornell West, has entered into the chat on the presidential election. Yeah, he's gaslighting, <laughs> man. I love Cornell. <laughs> yeah, he, he's just like, yeah. I'm just trying to, I mean, he ain't got a snowball's chance of hell and hell winning, but go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it was because for me, I mean, so I was undergrad. I was a political science major. So for me, political theater is interesting, right? Like this sort of stuff, like it is something that I, I kind of get geeked up on. Right. And it's just like, <laughs> now, whether or not how I feel about it in terms of what it does to the reality of the situation sometimes is different, right? Like, so my yeah. interest in it, you know, is not always matched with, like, is this a good thing or a bad thing? But from just an outsider's perspective, like, the political sciences is me like, okay, this is going to be interesting. Um, so when you saw it, what did you think about his, particularly him, because of the type of figure that he is, Dr. Yeah. West? Um and what he brings to the table and the type of uh, rhetoric and push that, you know, he's historically has had, um, what does that mean in the political sphere um, for the upcoming election or next year? Very little, <laughs> you know, very little. It, it, it's not going to impact the election. And, and Cornell has, you know, dabbled in this, this, mm-hmm. this sphere before. And let me say, I love Cornell West. I think the Cornell West is the Du Bois of our time. Really? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I think he is brilliant. Mm-hmm. I think he is committed. I think he is cult, you know, you know, really conscious historically, contemporarily, and politically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think he loves, loves black people. Absolutely. You know, and I think he articulates um, the reality of black struggle in ways that are unsurpassed mm. by anybody in, in his generation. Mm. People ain't gonna vote for him, no. but if, if they listen, if they listen, they will hear an interrogation of American society, political sub and superstructures, and the havoc that they wreak in a way that you ain't gonna hear from Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump, and you ain't gonna hear from Joe yep. Biden or Kamala Harris either. Right. You know? And so in, in, in that respect, I think it is great. But I think it is hard, man. Mm-hmm. It is hard for an intellectual to make his way or her way and to make any hay in an anti-intellectual society. 
Mm-hmm. And we already talked about that. This is an anti-intellectual society. And, and Cornell West is a top shelf intellectual, you know? And, and so what is it really going to mean as far as impacting mm-hmm. the election? Nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm an independent. I'll vote for him, But... <laughs> You know, and I know that I know Democrats before. Well, see, this is the problem because you know all of y'all gonna go out and vote for Cornell West, and that's gonna give split the Republicans. You gonna split? Stop, because we can have another. Comp- we, we can do a, a a weekly thing here together mm. and just talk about politics. Yeah, the Republicans are terrible, mm. but the Democrats are terrible too. Mm. The Democrats suck. The Democrats only claim to black people, like, if they told the truth, which you got as much chance of getting a politician to tell the truth as you do going out there telling that tree to pull up roots and walk. Mm-hmm. But if a Democrat was honest about their party and race and say, yeah, we're terrible, we pimp y'all, we come to see you every two, four, or six years to get your vote, but then we generally don't pay very much attention to black people, but... We better than the Republicans. Now they are better than the Republicans. I mean, the Republicans are modern Klansmen in suits, damn near. Mm. But the Democrats, I mean, terrible. Many of them lack courage. They try to eviscerate the doggone courageous people like AOC in their own party. They deliver terrible candidates to the doggone polls repeatedly. Mm. And then you want to tell black folk, hey, you got to go out and vote. For who? For this clown? Mm. I mean, this is what you're doing, DNC? This is what you're doing, state Democratic Party? Come on, man. And so we get trapped. So do I end up voting for the Democrats? Yeah. But I ain't really voting for the Democrats. I'm voting against the Republicans. And so you be honest, man. When's the last time you voted for a candidate rather than against another? Obama, certainly. Mm -hmm. First time first around. around. I was, yeah, first time around. I was excited that first time around, you know. Yeah. Not as excited as some people, but I was excited. Second time around, like, come on, man. Y'all know what this brother is, mm. you know? So, yeah, I mean, I think that is my hope. I mean, because all You're of You're a that hopeful is, guy. You I, keep I talking am. about hope. I, I, <laughs> hey, man. Bill Clinton. There's this Jesse Fryer. <laughs> um... But I guess in thinking about Cornell, just back on that, is, you know, what I do hope is that he is able to, for the time that he's in there, because I, I wonder if he is still a massive, because, you know, at one point in this country, he was a massive figure. And I don't know if he still is. I think it kind of depends on who you ask. But I do wonder if he, is, if he still holds enough weight nationally to be able to start to shift the conversation, right? Like to at least force Joe Biden or whoever else is talking to start to have the conversation around black people and around these systems um, that, you know, are absolutely oppressing us and have not changed under any administration. Um, And so that is, you know, if there is a thing that I because I agree with you, like he ain't got a snowball's chance in winning anything. But if he's powerful enough to be able to move the conversation, does that help us? in some way, shape, or form? Does it at least begin to move the needle in one direction or another? Let me tell you something. We're at a point right now where, and I'm, 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 trying, I'm trying to find a better word, a more politically correct word, uh, but I can't. <laughs> 
the Coons are winning. Mm. You know, and that's an old word in the, in, in, in the black community. Yeah. You know, it is very, very difficult for a brother like Cornell West to come into any space and be able to really push a strong and solid conversation about black people. When the other side got 10 black people who'll come and say, oh, don't listen to Cornell West. He's mm -hmm. irrelevant. It's the same thing in every space. That's one big reason why I've kind of stepped away from campus politics at the University of Louisville. Same mm -hmm. dynamic. I can say something now, but they got five or six other black folk that are in certain positions who can be like, oh, no, 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 that's extreme. There's no reason for us to pay attention to that. And so when you have enough black people, and I'm not just talking about on the Republican side. Right. I'm talking about also on the Democratic side. Quote, unquote, moderates. Mm -hmm. Cornell West is a revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And a revolutionary is just a person who wants change. You go back to earlier in this conversation with all the stuff that's happening to black people, mm -hmm. from the cradle to the grave, and if you don't want revolutionary change the way that black people are handled in this world, you crazy. Mm -hmm. You are crazy. You really ain't woke. You definitely are asleep, mm -hmm. and you're insane. People want to say, oh, these revolutionaries, they're crazy. No, they're the sane ones, right? Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a tough road to hold for Cornell to even shift the conversation because many people have been so dumbed down at this point, brother. Mm. They ain't having no political conversations at all. They're not engaging at all. You know, they, you talk to black people about what's happening to us politically, there's no upset. Tell them Beyonce can't sing. People lose their minds. There, I mean, they will war. lose their minds, right? Wait right. a minute. What'd you, what, what'd you say about Queen Bee? Mm -hmm. You know, they start tripping out. And I'm like, wait a minute. You, you more upset about Beyonce mm -hmm. <laughs> than you are about black people in mass? I mean, this is where we are. Now, rescue me if I'm wrong. Am I lying? No, I mean, <laughs> I mean there are people who care. Like I, there, I didn't there, say there was nobody. I didn't, I didn't say there was. I just want to make sure the people hear it. That there, we are know we know that there are masses of people out here who do care. You like about Barry. more than just you like Halle Berry. Make like, me feel you know, good. Just, you make yeah. me feel good. <laughs> I just want to make sure the people see themselves in this. We know that there are folks. I mean, there are movements and entire movements. But I'm I think you're right. There are not. No, but they there, exist. Are, you are you are absolutely correct. Like there are there is. And it is by design, right? Of like course. I think, and I think that is the most most frustrating part of it all for me is to recognize it, like to be able to sit back and kind of see the game and, and actually see it work, yeah. Like and just it's working well. I mean, it's working super. well. It's working well. And, and look, man, I ain't one of those cats who like, well, he black, gotta support him. She black, gotta support him, or, or be quiet about him. That's dangerous, man. Yeah. That's, that's dangerous. You get, you get the wrong black person in these spaces, mm -hmm. okay? They will destroy individuals. Yeah. They will destroy organizations. They will destroy our people. Mm -hmm. And you're going to sit there just because they black? And you be like, well, I, I, I can't say nothing. 
Hey. Nah, man. No, I'm with you on that. I saw saw a poster the other day and said, if you promote the wrong people, you're going to lose the best people. Yup. And that is, and we see that in so many different contexts, right? Like political contexts, but, um, you know, in places, business organizations, the whole nine, like it is, it is this willingness to promote certain people for whatever reason um, at the expense of folks who, who truly are, you know, or have the potential to, to help us get to the next spot. But you know the reason, though, right? For the, status, for the majority group to maintain the status quo and maintain their power, it is absolutely in their best interest to choose the weaker, less talented, less courageous black people to put into positions every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Leave the stronger ones outside because the weaker ones are not going to do anything to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is when the stronger ones or the masses turn around and support the doggone weaker ones. Mm -hmm. So the infrastructure, the, the majority group infrastructure then remains stable. They got nothing to fear because they're like, oh, these Negroes ain't going to push back. Mm -hmm. So we can, we can take this weaker black person who's going to do exactly what we say do. You know, like y'all got this big, nice conference table in here mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Well, you know, we just got to be in the room, got to have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. You put a black person at the table who's saying the same doggone thing that the white supremacist has been saying for the last 50 years, what does that matter? In fact, it's more dangerous because you, you can't even say they're racist. Right. Right? Yeah. And so my thing is, yo, man, y'all better talk. Mm -hmm. Y'all better say something. People said to me, why you talk so much? Why you say so much? And I'm like, the better question is, why do you say so little? Mm -hmm. If you would say more, and he would say more, and she would say more, if, if folk would say more collectively, then I could say less. Mm. You could say less, right? Yeah. And you could keep your brain intact. And that's the big thing. Because you're going through white supremacist CTE. Yeah. Right now, your brain get rattled with it every day because you're by yourself. I mean, seriously, you talk about that hope. How many black people in this town do you really trust to fight with you when the whip really, really comes down? You know, don't answer that question. I'm not going just to. Think <laughs> 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 just, just think about it. Just something you think about. Not even And I ask to everybody try. out there, to, <laughs> if you a strong black person. <laughs> <laughs> get, get me in trouble on my own podcast. No, we're not doing that. But point taken. Point taken. <laughs> point taken. Um, we gotta we gotta start yep. wrapping this up, which means we gonna have to. At yeah, some we point, way over time. Yeah, we gonna have to at some point schedule a part two. But look, so I trust so, you, man. <laughs> so here's 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 how I, I typically close, and and um. Because I do, it, it it does come back to hope. So you you will get to answer a question twice about hope. But one is about what you leave in, or not necessarily leaving, because you're still gonna be there. But when you reflect on your time, and I don't know if you how reflective of an individual you are, but when you reflect on your time as chair of Pan African Studies and all that you've done. Um, What's something that you 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 kind of stick your chest out about? Something that you're really proud of um, in that time? This is gonna sound odd, man, but the example 
And, and I think of Malcolm with this, you know. I, th I think that I have led in such a way and lived my life in such a way, and this has been important for me, to live my life in such a way, to stand up in spaces where a lot of people wouldn't, to wage battles that a lot of people wouldn't, and survive it, mm. you know. And I think it's important, you know, because you would see Malcolm with his smile, and it was, it was almost like he would just say what a lot of people would see as the wildest stuff, but it was true. Mm -hmm. And then he'd look back at his people, he'd just smile. And be like, yeah, I said it. Yeah, I did it, and I'm still here. And you can do it too. Mm -hmm. if, if I've left nothing else, you know, later for the programs, later for the classes, all of that stuff, certainly I'm proud of my students. But it's the example, hopefully it's an example where other people in their moments of doubt will remember and say, yeah, I can be brave too, and I gotta be brave too, because my people and our children are looking at me. Mm. You know, I, I never want my daughter to look at me and say my father's a coward. Mm. I never, I, I've never wanted that. I've I, I never wanted any of the children that have been placed in my charge to look at me and say, Dr. Jones is a coward. I want them to look at me when they go through their own trials and be like, yeah, I'm scared to do this, but I'm going to do it because he would have. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm dead and gone, I want them to, to, to do that. So that, the, that example is, is, is what I think I've left. That's amazing. And then the last question. Um, you, I mean, Louisville has become your home. I mean, you're a kid. No, from it's not. <laughs> it, it's not. I mean, I'm just being honest, man. I mean, no. Atlanta's my home. Louisville's been a base of operations. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. For a very long time. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so fine. <laughs> it has been a base of operation for an incredibly long time. Yes. So that's fine. <laughs> Thinking about that, what is your hope for this place? <sighs> that that it'll make a turn. I, I, I think that, that Louisville is Kentucky's last hope. I think that, that Louisville is the gem of the state, mm -hmm. and that, that's all relative. I hope that people will realize that and, and make a decision, because I think there have been so many missed opportunities for the city. I think there are some folk, it's a very small, clannish town mentally, even though it's a large city, relatively, mm -hmm. you know, what's well, like 1920th largest city in, in, in the country, something like that. And I, I hope people will really work in earnest to bring it into the 21st century. Mm -hmm. I, I sincerely hope that, that Louisville will not lose the majority of its talent where our people are concerned and that this will become, this will truly become a place where, where black people and their children can enter into a more equality, humanity, decency, and mm. peace. Um, that, that's my hope mm. for the city as it, as it moves forward. Well, Dr. Jones, I appreciate this time that you've spent. And I will just say um, thank you for your dedication and, and commitment to this 
base of operations <laughs> and to the black people in it, um, to the work that you've done at the university, um, the leadership that you've shown there, the leadership that you've shown, shown around this city, and mostly for, you know, for your courage, right? Like, I, I don't, and I do not say that lightly because I truly believe it is the most underrated skill or asset that an individual can possess. Um, and so when I see it in individuals, when I see them put it on display, it is something that I am truly appreciative of, particularly when they harness it in the name of black people. Um, it is something that I'm truly appreciative of uh, because I know it's not easy. Um, and I know that it is, it requires much more emotional, mental, um, and psychological strength than I think people sometimes give it credit for. And so I thank you for always putting that on display and harnessing that courage in the name of black people, um, not just here in Louisville, but across this nation. Um, thank you for always inspiring and offering words of wisdom, not only just for me, um, but support for the league and so many others. Um, and so we just appreciate you. I appreciate you. Love you and mean that sincerely. Uh, you know, and, and look forward to continuing uh, this fight with you um, for for black people because we gonna we gonna keep fighting until until the war is won. And so thank you uh, for your partnership in that. And ladies and gentlemen, that is listen up the Louisville Urban League's radio show and podcast. Please join us every week because this. Uh, as we debut on Thursdays from 12 to 1230 on WLLV 101.9 FM or 1240 AM or find us anywhere you get your favorite podcast. Um, be sure to subscribe, rate us, review us, let us know what you think of the show. I pray that you have a blessed and wonderful week um, as we get into summer. Uh, stay safe and be well, and we will see you next week. Are you ready for a legendary event? Join us for the fourth annual Louisville Juneteenth Festival. Sunday, June 18th at the Belvedere. Sign up to be a vendor, volunteer, or talent. This event is sponsored by Churchill Downs, Derby City Gaming, and the Louisville Urban League. For more information, visit LouisvilleJuneteenthFest.com. Do something black today. Urban League's Kentuckiana Bills program is your introduction to the skills trades that lead to careers in construction, plumbing, electrical, carpentry, and HVAC. This six-week hands-on and technical education program provides training for job seekers to earn three national credentials, JCTC credit, all while connecting employers with a qualified, skilled workforce. This innovative partnership is funded by Kentuckiana Works and the Kentucky Education and Workforce Development Cabinet. For more information, visit lul.org backslash jobs. 
the Louisville Urban League wants to make sure that every student thrives academically. And to make that possible, the league is offering free intensive tutoring to JCPS students who qualify. Kindergarten through 12th grade students can receive expert help in reading, math, and ACT prep. Kids like me deserve every opportunity to succeed and to reach our greatest potential. Sign your student up today. To learn more, visit lul.org or call 502-585-4622.